2: Welcome back to Killer Fun, where we explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. I'm Christy. And I'm Jackie. And we're so glad that you're back with us today. Today, we're talking about murder house flip. How has this not been a thing yet? I know. It makes so much sense. Like if you're going to live in a murder house, then you want to make it different. How has nobody capitalized on this yet?
1: Right. I feel like all of the history of trading spaces and the HGTV shows and like house hunters. Now, there has been haunted house stuff, but they've never really done the whole, you know, crime and murder thing. But that that is a thing. That is a thing. And I can't believe it's not been a thing until now.
2: Exactly. And it's a great way to get of an affordable house in an expensive area. If you're in Sacramento is not an inexpensive place to live. There's no inexpensive places to live in California and Sacramento is no exception. So if you need a decent size house for a more affordable price, a house with a history is going to be something that might work for you. If you can get past the history, (laughs) well, it's on a new service. So it just launched in April of 2020. I believe you can still get a limited time free trial. And then it's a per month fee, $5 a month, uh, ad supported $8 a month with no ad. And it's it's called Quibi, Q-U-I-B-I. It's very interesting. It really is like these little short takes. 10 minutes or less every show. There's some shows just two minutes long, some all the way up to 10 minutes long, but nothing longer than 10. It's very often several episodes to tell a story of something.
1: Right, like this one.
2: Right, like this one. The one, one. we're going to
1: cover. Yeah.
2: Right. It's three episodes that we're going to talk about that cover one renovation of a murder house. It's a total of 16 minutes. It's not very long. It's shorter than even like a half hour HGTV show. They cover pretty much all the same stuff. Right. Except, you know, murder at the beginning.
1: Because well, that,
2: that as you yeah. do murder. <laughs> like you do. <laughs> <laughs> uh they have stuff, documentaries, dramas, humor, animal videos, news, they have big names, Chrissy Teigen, Anna Kendrick, LeBron James, and then newcomers to television. Yeah, it's really cool. It is really neat. And what's unique about it is
1: that you can watch it vertically or horizontally.
2: I really love that, the way they have it set up so that when you turn your phone as you're watching something, you can still see the main meat of everything if it's vertical. And they the titles and stuff that are on the image move when you do change it's super cool and it's like edited
1: for that it's edited for that vertical so that it feels natural it feels good like it's very purposeful but if you were to turn it horizontal you get a more traditional look at the at the video so it's really neat i kind of like it because i went back and forth okay how many times did you go back and forth like ooh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> ooh. a bunch
2: because i was like ooh, i wonder how they're handling that vertically and i turn it and i'm like ooh, that's cool it's right in the middle now instead of at the bottom and right it
1: was, like it was really kind of cool and I so thought i don't know nice. No, like my hand gets tired but it is easier to hold my phone vertically probably because mm-hmm. I have smaller hands and so it's just easier that way well than and you have holder. a giant phone yeah <laughs> and so um sometimes I don't like to watch things horizontally because you know you get tired of holding it or you feel like you have to have a two-hand hold and but vertically you can just kind of prop it up and look at it and they're so short that it'd be like okay well I'm scrolling through and then I'll watch this for a couple of minutes like you would any video except that it's purposefully filling your screen
2: it's great yeah I thought it was really it's really neat it's really well done it's really interesting I'll be interested to see how well people are responsive to this
1: yeah I think what's interesting though is because it is primarily advertised like it's vertical I Mm -hmm. think a lot of people don't realize that it's also horizontal
2: yeah and so that's
1: the thing that people need to know
2: Yeah. And I hadn't even realized that it was advertised as vertical. I just set my phone down horizontal when I watched it in the beginning. And then you said something about, well, my husband doesn't like how it's vertical. And I'm like, I didn't watch it vertical. (laughs) So that's when I was like, I went back and watched it again. And I was like, oh, wow. And then I was not paying attention to what the show was. Obviously, I had paid attention the first time, so it wasn't that big of a deal. It was more of a refresher, but I was paying attention to how to turn it horizontal and vertical and how it changed, and I just thought it was really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. But the show is really good, and I'm excited because, you know, this little
1: three-episode story is awesome, and then there's more. There's more, and so I'm really excited. But this little murder was a very interesting one to me. Because it
2: was quite unique. We're so getting into all that, all that, but let's talk about who's in this first. So this has a mix of newcomers to television, reality television, a veteran of reality television and then some, like, quote-unquote ordinary people. I don't know anybody who lives in a murder house is really an ordinary person. They were not ordinary. They, they're not ordinary. But they're ordinary in that they're not regularly on television.
1: Right. That, yeah. Now that makes sense. So, but they are definitely not ordinary. That guy, hysterical. Oh Oh, my gosh.
2: <laughs> oh, my gosh. So the reality TV veteran... Mikel Welsh was the uh, host, and he grew up in Michigan, and he used his Legos to design furniture for Lego houses. Since he was a child, he's like known that he wanted to be in interior design. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And he runs a New York-based interior design business, Michael Welsh Designs, And he has also been on Trading Spaces, which was on TLC for a long time. And his designs have been on HGTV, The Real Housewives of Atlanta, Good Morning America. He's worked for a bunch of really famous people and won awards and been in Architectural Digest and all that stuff. So good for him. He's like very much got the experience on television, but also the design clout behind him. Then we have our newcomer, Joelle Usel, and she is never done television before, but she does live in Los Angeles. Uh, she's a real estate developer, which means oh. she flips houses. Yeah, that's what yeah. she does. That's, that's pretty much what she does. She has an interior design firm called JL Decors in Los Angeles. She admitted how freaked out some of the houses made her that it just seemed really, really strange to her. So she's got a uh, new perspective as far as being a television host, but still has the experience of being a designer and a flipper and kind of understands what it takes to do the construction and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, and I really like the chemistry between the two of them. Yeah. They were a lot of fun together, and yeah. I liked how they worked together uh, well, and that's really an understatement. I feel like they brought different perspectives, but were just as excited about the new perspectives. And so that was very fun to watch, because it was inspiring to see cooperation that was so, um, you know, bent on
2: what is your idea? Oh, that's great. I'd like to learn about that. So I like that Mm -hmm. between them. I wonder if it's maybe that they're bi-coastal, that he's primarily in New York and she's primarily in Los Angeles, that they're, they don't really feel like they're competing. So often in these shows, you feel like the hosts are competing with one another. Yes,
1: that's exactly what happens. Or they continue to try to one-up each other. And this one felt much
2: better. It was much more collaborative. Mm-hmm. I liked it. All right. And then let's talk a little bit about the ordinary people, the homeowners, Barbara (laughs) Holmes and her husband, Tom Williams. So I was like, Barbara Holmes, we just covered H.H. Holmes. What a coincidence. Yes. Yeah. So Barbara Holmes has an Etsy page. She's an artist. We learned that in this episode. She's an artist, does a lot of uh, mosaic work. So that is on display on her Etsy page. And I'll put a link to that on our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast, exploring the intersection of crime and entertainment. You can find us on Twitter, Killer Fun Pod. Or you can send us an email, killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. So she's fairly... Prolific with her work, from what I understand. She's got a really unusual sense of style. We see those mannequins in her backyard in the first episode. That was so funny. It was funny and it was almost creepier than it was. I could not have asked for a better opening. When (laughs) Joelle
1: walks out there and she's looking at the mannequins, like, uh, are we sure it's not still a murder house? (laughs) I just, the look on her face
2: was so priceless. Yes. It was, I thought it was very funny, but she actually had a art exhibit. They get people come in by their house almost every day because of the house history. So they decided to go ahead and kind of open up the home and let people have a look at it because there's a lot of morbid curiosity. Totally understand. Totally. They also showed some of her art. She's worked on some of it with her daughter. Um, And they called it Art to Die For. (laughs) (laughs) And they said, It's not our fault that the house has this weird history, but. It is their fault that they bought it. Well, exactly. I mean, they knew (laughs) the history of the house. <laughs> I'm just when kidding. they bought but it I'm not,
1: right I, well, and what 's interesting is to know that they opened the home, but then, like the yard, which is kind of a big part of the story, was so horrible, it was a disaster, and so i 'm thinking, well i can I wonder how they 're going to open it up to the public now
2: no oh, well i don 't know I bet crap. they will I bet I they will know. because they did that back in September of two thousand and eighteen is when they had the the art exhibit and allowed people to look at some of the house all right so let's get into a real brief recap because it's only 16 minutes a show uh barbara and tom bought the home in 2010 and they really liked the style of it it's a very pretty house
1: it is a really pretty house
2: yeah it's very old but with its nice unique design it's real pretty um and of course they liked the price Uh, They briefly, just very briefly, shared the story of Dorothea Puente, who poisoned people and kept them in what is now the master bedroom until they started to decompose and she could dispose of their bodies, which is weird. I guess they're not bothered by it.
1: Yeah, because they sleep in that room now. And there's the original
2: hardwood floors. Okay, that totally, like, they didn't do anything about this either. No, they did not. They did not touch the inside of this house at all. And if it were me, I mean, they did a great job with the backyard. And I oh, get yeah. that that's like where it really needed to happen, that they're happy enough with their master bedroom. But if it were me, oh, rip up those floors. That's haunted.
1: That is, uh, well, and like Joelle is all like, I mean, you know something seeped, <laughs> DNA Something seeped into those floors. I mean, there's no, like, stains. There's no, like, body stains or whatever. I guess they were wrapped. Uh,
2: oh, nevertheless. Oops. Nevertheless. They, well, I mean, they want to know who some of these people were. Yeah. There's probably still Ugh. evidence. I know it's gross. I found it very entertaining how uncomfortable Joel was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we've mentioned the backyard was just a mess. I mean, just like piles of stuff. So it was interesting yeah. to see how they handled all of that. <laughs> and they did the initial walkthrough of the house at night to make it creepier.
1: Did you yeah, notice that? I, was I like, did
2: notice that. <laughs> I'm like, that's a little contrived because they really, they would have gone and done that during the day. They really would have. Yeah. They would this, have. This is not a trading spaces situation where they start at a certain point in the day because they only have so long to do their renovation or whatever, they would have done that part, whatever. I thought it was silly and fun.
1: <laughs> it, it was be silly, both. but
2: you loved it. I It was silly, but I loved it. I loved, I kind of loved how contrived it was, honestly.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so the second episode they're working during the day. You know They're talking about how they're going to make it more usable for the couple and their families when they come over and the grandkids and all this stuff. And then they're pulling down the fence and Joelle is totally freaked out by a spider, which (laughs) I found so funny. I'm like, at night, she's creeped out about the history of the house and talking about it. During the day, it's the spider that scares her. That would be me. Yeah, yeah. Well, dead yes, bodies,
1: DNA on the hardwood floors. No, spider, heck no. Yeah, you're like, over that it. would have taken every ounce of attention I had. <laughs> yep, I felt her in that moment. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then the third episode, of course, as with all these renovation shows, they finished in the nick of time. Of course, of course, just barely in time. But Barbara and Tom really love their renovation. They love how it emphasizes family. It it gives them sheltered places and other sorts of gathering places. There's this emphasis on family with waterproof photos on the fence.
1: Which was so cute.
2: Yeah. Yeah, That was adorable. Which I thought was really interesting. And they they were really conscious about not getting rid of their storage space, making it look more appealing. They gave... Barbara a place to work and contain her art materials. So
1: I thought that was great. Yeah. I kind of loved the ending. It was great.
2: They felt like they were really glad at how, it really felt like their home. Yep. So
1: it was a really so, cute reveal and I adored everything that they chose. Actually.
2: Yeah, yeah I did too. Mm-hmm. I thought it was great. And so if you want to see all, and I not going to tell you about all of that. I mean, it's 16 minutes of your life that you can watch more than likely for free. Just go download the app. Check it out. You'll, you'll have fun. So you will have fun. You will yeah. enjoy it. And there
1: are other good things on there. So check it out for sure. Mm-hmm.
2: All right. Okay. But this
1: murderer, We got to get to
2: that soon. Oh, we're going to take a break and I'm going to tell you Test your luck in the shadowy world at the Godfather slot. Someday,
1: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpercasino.com. Welcome
0: to the family.
1: VGW Group, no purchase necessary. we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions,
0: 18+. Hi there, it's Matthew from Entertainment Talk, here to tell you all about what we do and what we podcast on. Entertainment Talk covers a big range of TV, video games, and films, from some of the biggest TV shows out there, such as The Walking Dead, Better Call Saul, Westworld and many more to some of the smaller shows out there such as the CW's Arrowverse shows and many more. We also have a weekly video games podcast discussing the latest news and our impressions of the games we're currently playing to different video game reviews as well. We also do cover sports such as Manchester United and what else is happening in the world of football. We also have film reviews as well and discussion podcasts about all of those different topics so come and check it all out on entertainmenttalk.org.
2: Thanks for sticking with us through that quick break. Now, Dorothea Puente. Creepy. Oh my gosh. Creepy. And we'll talk about some of her motivations. Dorothea, born Dorothea Gray, grew up in a home that was abusive, which is unfortunate. And then she was orphaned fairly young, lived in a group home. Eventually, some family members from Sacramento came and collected her. And that's how she ended up there at 19. She was already involved in crime for a living. Yeah. Yeah. She started early. This is you, you hear about it. All you really hear is about the murders and stuff, but she had a much longer history with criminal activity than most people realize. And she'd gotten married. And then it's really unclear as to whether she divorced or her husband died.
1: I was going to say, or she murdered her husband. <laughs> well,
2: she tells everybody, and a lot of different articles reported that her husband died after just two years from a heart attack, which I'm like, suspicious. And then a couple others said, no, no, she to- that's what she told everybody, but really he divorced her. And she ended up being married like four times. Oh, wow. Which is amazing, because my understanding is that she wasn't a particularly nice person.
1: Well, I mean, that's evidenced by the whole, you know, poisoning people and burying them in her yard.
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) No, I'm very interested. What kind of crime was she into? Like, was it organized or?
2: No, it was, she was forging checks and things to make money. Uh And yeah, and she got caught. Spent a year in jail, but was or was sentenced to a year in jail, but was paroled after six months. And then in 1960, she was arrested because she was running a brothel and spent 90 days in Sacramento County Jail. And then after that, she was in and out of jail for increasingly serious crimes. That's very interesting. It is interesting. And it, it seemed like... Her criminal activity ceased when she finally got a job as a nurse's aide working for disabled and elderly people in private homes. So it seemed like she was young, maybe had this troubled childhood, got involved in illicit activities as a way of making money because she just didn't have very many good options. And then it seemed like she found her real true calling and. Stopped with that. Not so much. Not so much. Uh, No, in 1978, she actually did get a psychiatric diagnosis of chronic undifferentiated schizophrenia. Ooh. Yeah, it's a bad one because that one produces delusions and things. And her neighbors said that she would boast about acting roles where she would play the evil woman in various feature films, but all of that was erroneous. None of it was true. Easy to check, really. Like, I think even then, not so difficult, but, and she billed herself as a holistic doctor. Oh. Mm hmm. But it that's
1: was.
2: Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That would explain her interest in medication. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wait, let's throw some air quotes around that term, medication.
2: (laughs) The medication (laughs) was real. She just wasn't administering it properly. So, But she made her living from operating a boarding house. So she ran a super tight ship in her boarding house for $350 a month. Her boarders got a private room and two hot meals a day. And she fed them a huge breakfast at 6.30 in the morning and dinner at 3.30 in the afternoon, which I'm like, old people alert, dinner at (laughs) 3.30. But if they missed their meal, that was it. They were not allowed to enter the kitchen other than for the meals she prepared. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, so if you could leave and go get your own food somewhere else, but if you were not there for the meals at the time that they are specified, you didn't eat there. You didn't get the meal you'd paid for. They were also not allowed to touch the telephone or their mail. What? Yeah, she opened and read all of their mail. She would collect the mail, open it, read it, pass it on.
1: That's so... That's so
2: odd. Oh, no, it's not because of what she was doing. She was taking their checks. Any money that came from relatives, which she never invited anybody to live in her boarding house that had nearby relatives, it was only people who had faraway relatives and they were primarily older. So they were collecting social security. So she'd check, she'd take their social security checks and she'd give them a look. She'd give them a little stipend and say, well, the rest of it is barely covers your room and board here. So she would keep the rest of it. Oh, that's heinous. She made like $5,000 a month in the 80s, keeping their money. Wow. hmm So in 1982, Ruth Monroe started living with Dorothea in her upstairs apartment on F street in Sacramento. And then she died of a overdose of cocaine and Tylenol. So she did tell the police that this border, this friend of hers, I don't know. It was, she was kind of a cross between a border and a friend. It was somebody that Dorothea knew, but was also living with her and paying her to live there. But then she died and she told the police that it was because Ruth's husband was terminally ill and she was depressed about it. And they believed her and ruled it a suicide. Then just a few weeks later, Malcolm McKenzie, 74, told the police that Puente was drugging him and robbing him. Like he turned her in and she actually got convicted of three charges of theft in August of 1982 and was sentenced to serve five years in jail. Interesting. So they caught her, but she only served three years of that sentence. And while she was in there, she started up a pen pal relationship with Everson Gilmeth, who was a 77-year-old retiree in Oregon. I don't know how she met this guy, but somehow they started exchanging letters. All of a sudden, I'm
1: having a a bit of a flashback to a a certain game we played in our... First episodes where there was the write a prisoner thing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes. These things with the do kind of exist.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, and there's a whole website where if you want to find somebody to become a pen pal with that's in prison. Yeah. You Just can do that. Just make sure
1: you know when they're getting out. Mm-hmm.
2: Y- yeah. <laughs> Everson picked her up in his red 1980 Ford pickup truck. And they were soon making wedding plans. He picked her up from prison. And they were making wedding plans. They opened a joint bank account. Then in November of 1985, Dorothea hired Ishmael Flores to put in some wood paneling. And when he was finished, she gave him a red 1980 Ford pickup truck in good condition. And she said it belonged to her boyfriend who now lived in Los Angeles. And he didn't need it. I'm sorry. If you live in Los Angeles, you need a car.
1: Yeah, you do. (laughs) Like a lot. It's not New York.
2: Yeah. That's
1: creepy. So
2: he was not there. He did not live in her house with her. But she still called him her boyfriend. And then she said she needed a box. Six feet by three feet by two feet. She asked (laughs) Ishmael Flores to build this for her. And he said, well, sure. What do you need it for? I just need it to store books and other items. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. No. Other items. Yeah. So he built the box for her. And then she said she needed help transporting the box to a storage unit. It was nailed shut. And evidently Ishmael's maybe not the sharpest tool in his box of tools that he used to create this because he said yes then they found an unofficial household dumping site quote unquote on their way to the storage unit and just decided to ditch it there Ishmael asked her why she wanted to to put it there rather than take it to her storage and she said oh it's just really junk I decided I don't want to bother with it I don't want to go any further. We're just going to put it here. Well, of course, January 1st, 1986, fishermen found the box and there was a badly decomposed and unidentifiable body of an elderly man inside. If you said it's Everson Gilmeth, ding, 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 you win. But they didn't know that. They didn't know his identity for sure for three years. Oh. And she told his family that he'd been ill, and she forged letters to them, and they continued sending money to him, and she kept it. I mean, it was Oh, my bad. gosh. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit like Bernie,
1: right? Ugh. Like
2: Yes. Keeping up it, the idea that this
1: person is sick and just, like, cannot, you know, speak and cannot see people
2: and mm-hmm. whatnot. I hadn't made that connection, but you're absolutely right.
1: Yeah. That's so So, creepy.
2: Yeah. Dorothea was actually really popular with social workers because she would take in tough cases, people who were drug addicts, people who were abusive, the elderly, troubled people. She would take them in. She never mentioned her five felony convictions. And the social workers never asked. They just said... Yeah, I know. It's I mean, the in the
1: 80s, you could totally do some of these background checks. They could have seen it. But I can see that if they had no place else to go, it's kind of like, uh, I, you know what? I'm not going to ask, and she's not going to tell, and we don't care uh-huh. as long well, as things are going
2: well. Yeah. Well, this guy's been kicked out of six other places, and Dorothea said she'll take him. Good, because I can't find anywhere else for him. Right. Exactly. So you do what you do. But, oh awful. The uh, Peggy Nickerson was one of these social workers. And she said that she was that Dorothea was the best the system had to offer. And Peggy sent 19 clients over two years to live in Dorothea's boarding house, and did become worried when some of them started to disappear. Like she would go and they were never home when she would go to check on them. And she started to become nervous. In May of 1988, some neighbors complained about a sickly sweet smell in Dorothea's yard. Uh-huh. She blamed it on fertilizer that she was using in the garden called fish emulsion, which sounds terrible. <laughs> Why would you fertilize your yard with that? It seems like it would be stinky. Said yeah, the, there were sewage problems. She had a lot of reasons why it was happening. And there were a lot of flies in the area. She did not bury them deep enough. Uh, or she still had them in the bedroom
1: yeah. until,
2: uh-huh, until she could get them buried in the yard. Well. Some of the neighbors started to, in addition to the se- smell, started to notice that there was a man known as chief whom puente sort of adopted and used him as her personal handyman and he was around and he was doing digging in the basement and would take stuff out in a wheelbarrow which was weird because there was a concrete floor in the basement and then he made more concrete and re-concreted the basement and put a new slab in put a new there was a slab of concrete that ended up in the backyard that was new and all that was a little weird it just seemed like a lot of unnecessary work to the neighbors and then chief disappeared so i don't know i hope
1: that shed in the show isn't sitting on top of that concrete slab uh, i don't want to buried
2: in it i don't want to know Somebody called the police, and investigators went out to the house and found a corner of the yard that had been recently disturbed. They start digging and they found shreds of cloth, like clothing and what looked like beef jerky Ugh. uh-huh and then they they dig down and they get down several feet and it's just it's real suspicious and strange and they hit what they think is a tree root and detective john cabrera was like jabbing at it with a shovel and it couldn't get it to move so he climbed down into the hole and he said i wrapped my hand around it braced my feet and started pulling i pulled so hard that it broke loose and when i pulled it up i could see the joint it was a bone at that time i was airborne and out of the hole so as soon as he realized it was a human bone that he was digging up, and the things that they that looked like beef jerky was human remains, Ugh. they had a problem. Yeah, so of course, Dorothea hears the commotion inside the house, and she goes out to see what they found. Because, like, she doesn't know. She's pretending. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know. Maybe she's a better actor. I mean, she's a decent actress after all. I guess so. <laughs> she may have been she lying about the far. roles. Yeah. she. Well, she made up the roles that she was supposedly had in movies. But she fooled the police because she peered down into the hole, act, acted shocked that there would be a human corpse in her yard. And she was just absolutely shocked and then the investigative team started to drill into a slab this one of these new slabs of concrete to excavate underneath it dorothea went into the yard and asked the detective if she was under arrest and they said oh no they didn't even have her as a suspect they thought Mm -hmm. she they thought somebody else had done this i think they were suspecting chief Because he disappeared.
1: Right. And she
2: was, she looked like a grandmother.
1: Well, and she had all of these potentially dangerous people around her, the tough cases, so to speak. Mm
2: -hmm. Yep. So she wasn't really a suspect. So she said, Well, I'm going to go to this nearby hotel a few blocks away and get a cup of coffee. And they said, Oh, sure. Of course. No problem. And they escorted her past the reporters and onlookers who were there. So that she could get out safely. And then she's gone. They find three bodies under the slab of cement and a fifth under a gazebo in the yard. Then they realize several hours have gone by and Dorothea has not come back from getting her coffee. Mm-hmm. She has not come back because she has gone to Los Angeles. She ran. Of course. And of course. And what's the first thing she did? She went to a bar started chatting up a guy and told him her name was Donna Johansson. Johansson was the last name of one of her ex-husbands. So it wasn't out of the realm of possibility that that would be a name that she would use. Donna was not her name. And uh, the guy fortunately recognized her from the news and called the police.
1: Oh, busted.
2: Uh Yep. Totally busted. So a total of seven bodies were discovered buried in and around the house. Now we learned that in the murder house flip that there were seven bodies found there. The police were getting calls from relatives of people who'd stayed there. And none of them were local. They were all from further away. And they, they hear about this, realize that their relative had stayed in Dorothea's boarding house and they haven't heard from their relatives in a long time. So... There may have only been seven bodies, but they believe there were many, many more potential victims, and they don't know where their bodies were. So that was in 1988. They apprehended her in 1989, I believe, but her trial didn't start until October of
1: 1992.
2: Why did it take so long? Well, I guess there was a lot of evidence to go through, and... I don't I don't know exactly, but and it took an entire year for that trial. So the prosecutor was John O'Mara from the Sacramento District Attorney's Office. And he called 130 witnesses. They said that she used sleeping pills in their alcohol. She like as they mentioned in the show, the creme de menthe, she put sleeping pills in their drinks. And the defense the defense also called witnesses and they testified how Dorothea uh, helped these people to have successful careers and helped them get back on their feet after they'd had all this, these issues. And one of the boarders, his name was John Sharp, a retired cook. And he told reporters that she fed stray cats and gave her boarders clothes and cigarettes and even bought one disabled tenant an adult tricycle so he could be more mobile. And he just couldn't believe that she was this murderer. But some of the mental health experts for the defense even said that her abusive upbringing could have definitely motivated her to help the less fortunate, but it could also have brought out an evil side because it's very stressful caring for these sorts of tenants so the prosecution's main weakness was that there was really no witnesses to the murders yeah like none at all all of the remains that they found all seven bodies had traces of dalmane which is a prescription strength sleeping pill so every single one of them they couldn't do a lot of investigation on the bodies because they were so decomposed but all of them had traces of this it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist
0: pumper
2: And it's particularly lethal when taken with alcohol and to elderly people.
1: Well, that's the trifecta right
2: there for what she was doing. Exactly. So the jury deliberated for a month. They found her guilty of three murders, but could not come to an agreement on the other four. So she did go to prison. They refused to give her the death penalty, even though she was eligible for it because she looked like a grandma. Yeah. A little old lady. She looked like a a harmless little old lady and she was not, but she was in prison from the end of the trial in 1993 until her death on March 27th, 2011, where she died of natural causes. That's just so weird. Well, and just so, she knows she had to get help from somebody, this little bitty old lady, burying people in the yard. I read another account of um, how she would get the tenants to help her unwittingly. So she would say she wanted to plant a tree, and she'd have them dig a hole for her, and They'd, she'd keep telling them, no, I need it to be deeper. I need it to be deeper. And they're like, why does it need to be that deep for this apricot tree that you're planting? And she was like, that's how deep I need it, and that's how deep you're going to dig it if you want whatever, because she had the power to withhold.
1: Everything, food, shelter,
2: you know. Right, all of it. What little money she did share with them. So when I was trying to decide what to talk about during our psychology break, I only saw the diagnosis that she had of uh, chronic undifferentiated schizophrenia in one place. And I thought that's kind of a big can of worms. Yeah, it is. But why did she do it? She was greedy. Right. I mean, that's what it boils down to. No matter what her poor upbringing, how she was abused as a child... She was greedy. So I thought we would talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, let's, because you're right. Yeah. I mean, it really starts with that whole collecting the mail. It's always been about money. And then the whole uh-huh. operation is contingent on her being able to control it and get all that money in, you know. And then they're all there. I mean, and then they become useless to her. And so it's just a matter of get rid of them. I, I yeah, wonder if she you. had any joy in the actual killing at all. I wouldn't even think so.
2: No, I. I mean, maybe she didn't have any feelings about it at all because these the people would die in her care, and they would continue to get the social security checks.
1: Right. This was... she would
2: continue to cash them.
1: Exactly.
2: Talkspace has an article about the psychology of greed, and they talked about it as a, that it can be similar to addiction. Mm-hmm. That it's connected to addiction. Addiction is about the pursuit of a reward in the face of risk, and greed is very related to that, and related to substance abuse issues as well. That it um, it operates the sort of the same way, activates similar portions of the brain. Right? Yeah.
1: It is uh, really hard because, you know, greed is connected to a a selfishness, but also fear. You know, it's hard to figure it out because it's again, like a lot of them, it's are a lot of constructs, I should say it's, it's like a dimensional thing.
2: Yes. So there, there was an article on psychology today called is greed good. And they talked about some of the feelings behind greed, and how it can come from early negative experiences, which we know that Dorothea had, parental inconsistency, neglect, abuse, all things that she suffered. Mm -hmm. And it's those feelings of anxiety and vulnerability combined with low self-esteem often that lead the person to fixate on something that they feel like is a substitute, something that gives them safety. And so they want to pursue whatever that is, in this case, it was money, um, in order to give themselves a sense of security. They talk about greed being good is that it gives us a motivation to build and achieve. And that's often uh, applauded, particularly in US culture. So it's not a small amount of greed might help further things give people ambition. I would say overall greed not a great thing.
1: No, I mean, to focus on the aspects of it, right? Like the central aspects that have been identified are uh, self-interest and being not satisfied, right? And so in that respect, that's a central aspect of greed. So just think about, you know what, if I think about what my self-interests are in a healthy way, or if I think about, okay, I'm not satisfied and I continue to grow, it's really about taking those feelings and saying, okay, well, what do those teach me and where can I go with that? And then there's peripheral kind of features like the ambition and the addiction. And, um, and those are when you put them all together, then you get kind of a definition of greed and, um, and understanding how that experience of each different kind of aspect comes together to to create greed. So a little bit of greed, it's really not greed itself. But it's, you know, the aspects of it, the self-interest or the ambition or the not being satisfied, you know, but when you get a lot of that mixed together and those central features, and then you've got that peripheral on top of it, uh, now we're in shaky, shaky ground, you know?
2: Yeah, when it kind of goes to an extreme, or any mm-hmm. uh, emotion that goes to too much of an extreme can be detrimental. exactly. And then there was a really interesting article in Scientific American that greed begets more greed. This was from 2014, so it's not super new, but I thought it was really interesting. And uh, this guy, Michael Norton, did some research where he gave money to people, like an envelope with a small amount of money in it. It was like $6. And then he told the person before you you've been given this money by somebody else that you don't know that's a previous person in the experiment they decided how much they were going to give you were they going to give you all six dollars were they going to give split it with you are they going to give you just a small amount are they going to give you none and then he recorded their reactions to How much money they were given. It was not a lot of money, it was a small amount of money each time. People either received greed, generosity, or fairness. So, greed was they got very little or no money. Fairness was the money got split, or generosity was they got more than half, more than half, or all. And they found that people who received generosity didn't respond with generosity. They tend to to respond with fairness. People who got fairness tended to respond with fairness and people who received greed responded with greed. That's interesting. Says a lot, not it's one of those like treat people how you want to be treated, not how other people have treated you. Right. But we're kind of innately wanting to treat people the way we've been treated.
1: Right. We feel like we have to set it all in balance somehow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting. These studies and that that study is done and it's been replicated in other sorts of environments and Mm -hmm. it's pretty solid findings, you know, for the most part. And it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, how often if you get something, uh, you know, at Starbucks and somebody has paid it for it, how often do you then do that for the car after you or do you just accept the gift? And I'm not saying that that's an immoral thing. I think if somebody, you know, does something nice for you, it's okay to accept that and not then feel an obligation to then pass it on because then it kind of ruins the gift. And I think that's Okay to right. an extent. But it's one of those things. You're just happy you have the gift and you feel like that's special and you're thankful, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll pass it right along. However, in a longer time frame, generosity can beget generosity. So when we expand, yes. when we expand that time frame, we start looking at people in general and how they act You know, down the line, then, then we start to see, okay, that's where pay it forward happens.
2: Yeah. Well, and this guy said that you're more likely to pay greed forward because negative emotions have more of an impact on you. As, you know, as they should, you know, when somebody hurts you, you have a negative association with them, you're going to be more wary of that person in the future. Whereas somebody else who's been consistently nice to you, you're less impacted by. Takes a lot more positive interactions to affect you than negative interactions. Right. I thought this was particularly salient to Dorothea that sometimes people exhibit greed because the only way they have of exhibiting and dealing with the negative emotions that they have, Dorothea, from when she was young and didn't have much, was abused, was neglected. She can't pay the people who abused and neglected her back for being mean to her when she was a child or being terrible to her, but she can feel better by doing the same thing to her tenants. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, ex- uh, she can't uh, yeah. be mean to the people who deserve it, so she's mean to other right. people. Right.
1: Well, hurting people hurt people, right? We hear that a lot, yeah. you know, when we talk about bullying, you know, and things of that sort. You know, but, and it's hard yeah. because you see that she started off with a rough childhood. The problem continued, though, that she got into some bad things early. And so she continued a history of being treated poorly because of who she associated with. So even if she didn't have a bad childhood, all the things that she would have experienced in the bad crowd she was with and doing crime then created a history that then taught her that people treat you badly and that you have to get what's yours and all of that. And the positive outcomes of being greedy were still more, um, more desirable for her um, than it would be for a normal person because she just perpetuated that same history because, you know, these, these bad childhoods, it's so hard to talk about it because, you know, most people who have bad childhoods don't grow up to be criminals. Like, by the vast majority. So, bad childhood doesn't cause a bad adulthood. (laughs) Because otherwise, it would be equal. If you had a bad childhood, you would be a bad adult. But it's not the case. It's just that those who have criminal activity as an adult or have, you know, bad habits as an adult most likely had a bad childhood. So there's definitely an influence there. And the question is, where do you cut that off at the past? You know, where can you stop that, that thing from happening where it's like, okay, now I'm just on a bad path. You know, can you change your synchronicity to something positive instead of something negative? Right. You know?
2: Well, and you've told us before, it's a risk factor. Mm -hmm. It's not an excuse or an explanation.
1: Right. It's just a risk factor, but it does help explain and give, you know, some voice to the narrative of what happens there, you know, to think about those Mm -hmm. bad experiences. And it's so sad because you're thinking, oh, but what if she hadn't gotten into crime at 19? Like, what if, yeah, (laughs) what if that had been a different path? You know, what if she could have become a person who ran a boarding house and was able to help people because she had a heart for it? Instead of somebody who saw it as a target, which is how she saw herself as a target.
2: Right. All right. Real life. So, of course, all of the Dorothea stuff is real life. Um, At one point, Joelle made a joke about Barbara having bone white tiles for her art. So I was like, what about (laughs) bone white? What what about that? Yeah, what about that? that? Well, visualartscork.com said that in the 19th century, bone white paint was made by burning bones to a white ash. So they would actually burn bones at a high temperature to create a white ash. And that's how bone white paint got its name. Now it's mostly because they associate it with the color of bones, but it actually used to be made from bones. And then pigments through the ages has information about bone black, that there was a bone black paint that was used uh, traditionally where they would burn ivory to make a black pigment for paints. hmm Which I thought that was kind of weird. And... Uh, that is weird. Uh-huh. And very ironic that they burned ivory yeah. to make black paint. It just the way... It, when it burned, it burned differently than... Other bones. Hmm. It's just weird, but interesting. And uh, well, you weird. know, if you're thinking of painting your house bone white, I read an interesting suggestion that said you should get a board, get a uh, like a pint of the paint that you're thinking about, and get a two foot by two foot board and paint that with the color that you're thinking of painting your walls, and move it around the house so that you can see what it looks like up against the carpet or at different times of day before you commit to painting a room or several rooms because there's a thousand shade of white
1: yeah really there's a lot of white and then you have to go through the whole okay eggshell like matte gloss semi-gloss like you have Mm -hmm. to go through all of this you know and um it is hard to pick the right and i'm not even like
2: a big fan of white walls it's like a little bit of tan to them but even then you have is it a warm tan is it a cool tan does it have does it have blue in it does it have red in it there's all that stuff
1: right like do you like warm colors or cool colors and i don't know i'm a little spastic in my in my choices because i like a warm light bulb, but i like a cool Mm -hmm. gray you know like and i think together Mm -hmm. that's great
2: (laughs) oh yeah well that's fine it's just about understanding what your preferences are it's true, but even if you know what your
1: preferences are, I'm telling you, trading spaces had a big influence on me a long time ago. We had bought a house in Boston, oh, and I decided I was going to do uh-huh. that faux finish thing. You ever tried a rag roller? No,
2: it's pain in the butt in it on a
1: wall. Oh, gosh, I, it was not good, and and the color choice is not good, and it all just looked like a McDonald's fry box, and it was so oh, bad. Oh, no. It was so bad. So, after oh. it was done, though, it was like, we're stuck. So, I went with this whole, like, super Jamaican theme, and, and actually kind of pulled together, and it was the weirdest room I have ever ever lived in. I mean, it was our master bedroom and Uh it was so horrible and, you know, you just have to play to what you've got, but we could not redo it. And we had to, we had to paint over the wallpaper because the walls were horsehair plaster. And so we take the
2: wallpaper down.
1: No, because it was holding the whole house together. And so we had (laughs) to paint over it, which I think made the whole faux finish the problem. If we had Uh just painted it, it would have had a faux finish. Like, well, actually, it would have had a real finish. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was over the wallpaper. But, you know, oh,
2: we learned our lesson then. Yeah. All (laughs) right. And the last thing. So they had waterproof family photos. Right? I was like, how did they... How did they do that? I so that. I started looking. So there is waterproof photo paper. That's a thing, which I didn't know that I guess you can use it even like with your own inkjet printer oh. at home. I found a video of it where they just printed it on their little, I don't know if they had a special inkjet printer or what, but they printed it, let it dry. And then they put it in water and it was perfect. I was like, Now
1: I thought it was the frame that was waterproof,
2: not the photo. Oh, well, (gasps) they said waterproof photos. So I was like, so that sent me down a whole rabbit hole. I'm so glad it did, because I would have never even thought to look at the photo paper itself. Wow. They have special sprays that you can use on regular photos to help waterproof them. So cool. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind a rustic look, you can use clear duct tape or packing tape to waterproof your photos. You can laminate the photo, which makes sense.
1: That makes sense. Yeah.
2: But if you need to do it on a budget, if you just have seen this and you're like, I have got to put photos in my backyard now. I just have to do it, but I don't want to buy the special printer or buy the special paper or deal with it. You can put it inside a plastic bag before you put it in the frame. Well, that's true. It won't be perfect, but it will preserve your photos for a time, particularly if you use the glass, if the frame that you have has the UV coating on the glass.
1: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Simple, right? I loved
2: the idea of it on that fence. It was so cute. Yeah. I thought it was really cute, too. And I was like, I don't think that my backyard really needs that, but... What a cute idea. It is a really, well, what about under your porch or something? You know, like even if you don't have a
1: small garden yard like they do where Mm -hmm. photos on the fence would be like really is the size of a room. So it would make sense that your wall, quote unquote, was decorated. But I mean, if you had a a porch, like an overhang of some sort in your back, you know, or Mm -hmm. then maybe you put it up on the posts, you know, and and you know that they're safe there, you know, as long as you can secure it well enough to not like
2: fall off in the wind. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that was it. That's so amazing. Yeah. It was really cool. And I kind of got inspired. I started a new list on Amazon.
2: Oh. (laughs) This (sighs) is why the HGTV is a little dangerous. And these kind of shows are a little bit dangerous.
1: Right. At least we're a little older, a little wiser. And we're able to maybe take the ideas and apply them a little more, you know, appropriately. For our capabilities and space and budget.
2: All right. So (sighs) next time we are going to do Dead to Me season two, episode one. It's coming to Netflix or came to Netflix by the time this comes out on May the 8th. So So excited. You'll have time to watch this before our next episode comes out. And we're so excited to see what happens because our heroines were in quite the predicament at the end of season one. And I'm very interested to see where it goes from here. Yeah,
1: me too. I'm really excited. I can't wait
2: to watch it. And I might just binge the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Probably would be my guess. Yep. Probably. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening. We know you make a choice when you listen to us that we don't just come on the radio and we super appreciate it. We hope that you will tell a friend because it's way more fun when you can talk about it with a friend. And if you can rate and review that really does help us get found. If you can give us five stars, please do. If you cannot. Tell us why we want this to be an enjoyable listen for you. If there's something that we're not doing or that you'd like to hear differently, let us know because we're always open to suggestions.
1: Yep, when we can't wait to spend time with you next time. And so, thanks for joining us, and we will see you then.